TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello there. How are you going? It's time for another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to to get the best out of you. Today, we are talking to the fabulous Nicole Alexander, who is the best-selling author of five Australian fiction novels, The Bark Cutters, A Changing Land, Absolution Creek, Sunset Ridge, and The Great Plains. The Bark Cutters was my absolute favorite book and still remains to be my favorite book. And it was shortlisted for an Australian Book Industry Award. And both Absolution Creek and Sunset Ridge were chosen for the National 50 Books You Can't Put Down Government Initiative. A passionate writer with over 25 years experience, her novels, poetry, travel, creative writing and genealogy genealogy articles have been published internationally. Nicole's novels have been praised for their authenticity and rich historical detail, much of which is drawn from primary source material in the form of her very own family archives dating back over 120 years. Nicole has um, been profiled and appeared in national and international magazines, radio and television programs, including Time International, The Australian Women's Weekly, ABC's Landline and Radio National, among others. Nicole was also named the New South Wales Barwon Woman of the Year as part of the 2012 New South Wales Woman of the Year Awards. Nicole was recognised for her literary talent, the promotion of Outback Australia through her work and providing a strong female role model for rural professionals. And as I said, The Bark Cutters is just one of my most favourite, awesomest books ever. So I'm so excited to have Nicole here with me. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you very much, Kerry. It's great to be here. So, Nicole, tell us a little bit how you arrived um, to be at this fabulous point where you are like a very well-decorated author and very well-published author. Tell us your story. Thanks, Carrie. Well, I've always had a major interest in reading and English and the written word. And in 1988, which was during our bicentenary celebrations, I was actually approached to contribute to a work on our district, which is northwest of Moree, and my family's been farming the same property there since 1893. So after that work was published, I, to a, I guess to a certain extent it whetted my appetite. So then I embarked on writing poetry, short stories, genealogy works, and from there I sort of morphed into in-flight travel magazines. I was actually working in a marketing capacity in Singapore for a number of years and that's when I got involved in writing for for travel mags. After my contract finished in Singapore, I actually decided to have a break from the corporate world and to come home to the bush property for 12 months. My initial decision was to only stay there for the 12 months just to have that year's break. But the longer I stayed in the business... I guess really the longer I became very involved and attached to the family property and it was such a wonderful change getting away from sort of, you know, international corporates and going back to the land and a great family team trying to, you know, trying to run a business. And I guess it was really with that decision that I then thought, you know, light bulb moment, I'll try my hand at a longer piece of fiction, which... When I made that decision, I thought, 
how hard can it be because I've, you know, had a whole heap of other stuff published, but it actually took me 10 years to write that favourite book of yours, <laughs> The Bark Cutters. And I have to say that I look back now and I think, wow, that's, you know, a fairly hefty length of time, but I was doing other things. I was doing a, a master's in creative writing to try and hone my skills. Um, I had a collection of poetry released and I was working full-time in the family business as well. One of the reasons it took me so long was because I was literally trying to teach myself how to write 140,000 words. And it's, it's a big leap to go from the shorter form, poetry, short stories, travel articles, whatever else, and take the leap into writing mainstream fiction. The Bark Cutters actually has an interweaving narrative. So not only did, uh, well, I should say, not only was I learning how to write my first novel, but I chose, um, I guess you could say, the carpentry of the book itself was hard to master for a first-time novelist in that I had one section of the novel that was set in the mid-1800s and then another set, or other scenes, I should say, that were set basically in the 1990s. So trying to interweave those two stories around a generational family, um, farming family, I should say, was tricky and it did take me quite a while to master it. Did I think it was going to be published? No, um, I wasn't sure. I just thought, you know, I've never been a great television watcher until Game of Thrones came on, I have to say. But anyway, so I thought, well, you know, it's something to do in the evenings. But I sent it through to my agent in Sydney and she liked it and she actually agreed to represent me for the novel and it went through to, you know, a couple of publishing houses and within three months... I was actually accepted and signed up with my current publisher, which is Random House. It's a funny feeling where you actually get your first book contract. My mother and I were in the wait for it, the cactus department at Bunnings Department Store in Toowoomba when the agent actually called me to say that Random House had, had offered me this, this you know, great contract. And I'm pretty sure that all the shoppers there that day probably thought I'd won lotto because I physically sat down on the cement floor of the cactus department with this miniature cactus in my hand going, wow, mum, look, I've got something to tell you. So mm, it was, a, it was an, an interesting moment. And since then, um, so my first, that first book came out in 2010 and I was fortunate because it was shortlisted for an Australian Book Industry Award and since then I've been writing a book a year ever since and I've just signed another Two book, two book contract, um, yeah, two months ago now. So That's a great story for any budding writers. So your characters, and I've mentioned before how much I love the bark cutters, and in the beginning I mentioned how a lot of your work has also come from, um, you know, your family. So can you tell me uh, how do you develop such rich characters based on your experience and your family and get that to become a great read? Well, I think with my rural novels, I'm always, and you know, because I've sort of always delved more into the historical side of rural Australia, I've always been extraordinarily conscious of what it would take for people to settle um, in the bush, in the outback. In the 1800s, I mean, we are literally talking about families who 
had to cart, basically carve a swathe through the bush with their own hands. They were literally starting new businesses. They were transporting stock northwards or west or south, wherever they were going to be settling. They were building their own homes with those raw, locally sourced materials. And it doesn't take much to imagine the type of resilience and tenacity that would be required in that day and age without any of the convenience of modern society to go into what is effectively a new world, which the Australian bush was at that time. And I suppose I'm able to envisage that and then at the same time validate my feelings towards that subject through my own family's tenure on the land because we have been on the place since 1893 and I have this wealth of archival material which I'm so fortunate to have from my family. So we've got um, old paddock books and station diaries from sort of the late 1800s to, you know, well, onwards. And then there's magazines, um, mail-order catalogues from the 1920s and 1930s. And it's amazing for me because we have those catalogues and then some of those pieces of furniture that are in those Anthony Horden's mail-order catalogues from the 1920s that my grandparents ordered from, those pieces of furniture are still in the main homestead. Wow, that's amazing. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite humbling. Um, but, yeah, so I, I think you sort of get this idea of what people were like and then you have this great primary source material to sort of authenticate how you're trying to describe the people and the era and the personalities and the characters required. And I guess I've, I've come from a line of very strong males and to a certain extent, I suppose, too, strong-willed women who were extraordinarily resilient for the times that they lived in. And I think that sort of really helps my work and, and does lend that great air of authenticity to it. And I suppose at the same time, I'm still working in that family business as well. So I'm very much part of that lineage of people still working with the land, knowing that, you know, from my point of view, I'm only a custodian and there's, you know, all my forefathers have walked the same paddocks before me. So it's really quite... Sometimes you... As a writer, you know, all creatives are quite emotional and we get, you know, pent up and whatever, what's going to happen next? And we're filled with all this drama at times and the rest of the time you just think, oh, come on, Nicole, let's get back down to reality. But, you know, it is a very – it can be an overwhelming feeling if you think about it a lot, particularly when you're writing about those subjects. So you mentioned a couple of things there. The first thing I wanted to ask you is the resilience of those women. And certainly in your book, um, I think the first two books, you know, you, the – there are women that are both quite dichotomous. And by that, I mean, there's sort of these women that seem frail at the same time as being contrast with their daughter or even their grandmother, who was quite strong and resilient. What do you think makes a strong and resilient rural woman? Or what, what have you learned about your, your grandparents, say? Well, I think all rural, all rural women are, are, you know, very resilient in my, from a character development point of view, when I'm writing my books, I'm conscious that all great characters have to be flawed because we are as humans. So that's that's what makes us so wonderful, I guess, to a certain extent, to have those those foibles within a personality. Looking back 
um, at my own ancestors, I can imagine that they had the same strengths and weaknesses that we as women living in regional, rural and remote Australia today probably contend with. But the major difference is, I think, is that we now have all this wondrous technology. So if we choose to, we don't, you know, have to be alone. We can pick up a phone. We can go online. We can get support for anything we need to a certain extent. And we don't have to get in a wagon and sort of, you know, travel 20 miles to go to a shop um, anymore. Granted, we may still have to drive long distances. If I want a shopping day, it's a 220-kilometre trip in the car. But I have air conditioning and a radio, so I'm, I'm not complaining about it. So I think that, yeah, I think in, in the main, rural women are very innovative, resourceful, resilient, there's so many women in, in regional and rural and remote Australia that have set up their own businesses online, um, photography, online shops, etc. that I, I think that being in the bush now, we're not disadvantaged by distance because technology, particularly the internet, has opened up so many great doors for us. And I think that's probably what's given us a little bit more resilience um, as far as the, the, the barriers towards distance are, are concerned. But, uh, yeah, I'd, I really take my hat off to the women 100, 150 years ago who had to endure what we're enduring now without, you know, 5% of... Um, the yeah, the resources that... Yeah, that's right, the resources that are available to us today. Now, I've asked you this question before, but I think it was a, quite a while ago, might have been... I don't know how long ago it would have been, maybe five or so years ago. No, just after Bark Cutters, I think, came out of the second book. When you presented, I was sort of there in the back of the crowd at one of the workshops that you gave. Well, not workshops, just talking about writing and being a novelist. And I asked you what it was like to write a strong male character, given that you're, you yourself are a strong female character. What, you know, what, how, what do you draw on to, to beautifully capture that strength um, and as you said, the imperfection of some of the male characters. How do you write in the male form? I had a conference in Sydney a couple of weeks ago and one I was on a panel and, and one of the guys in the audience said to me, how is it possible that you're even able to write from a man's view, from a man's you know, perception, whatever? And I said to him, it doesn't matter if it's a man or boy, it could be a witch it could be a lion that speaks. As a writer, you have to immerse yourself into the character and get the bones straight in your head of how that character's going to react and behave in certain situations. Most writers, having made that comment, in the back of their mind, they've always taken a step backwards in that they've done what I call like a CSI profile where you really nutted down your character's um, attributes and failings. And as part of that, you might create a whole world around him or her for that matter, in that you've noted down what his socioeconomic conditions are like, whether he has grandparents, where he lives, what his education was like. For example, um, uh, a young boy who goes to a college in America and has a trust fund is going to have a totally different view on life compared to a boy who's brought up in a tin shed 
in the bush, in the Australian bush, in the 1800s. So I think it's just, even though it's, I suppose to some people it, it's hard to grasp how how novelists can actually, you know, stand in somebody else's shoes, it's really just having having an open approach to your character's persona. And, of course, authors are terrible observers of life. We're always watching people and things and how people react to things all the time, probably without even realising it. Because I know when my first book came out <clears throat> and I had a – there was a launch function for it and one of the questions that were asked afterwards was, Gina Cole, we didn't know that your family built their station on stock theft. I'm like, well, they didn't. That's part of the story. Oh, well, we just assumed that everything that was in the bar cutters was based on your family history. I'm like, no, not all of it. <laughs> So there is a fair bit that we make up. It is interesting because um, my family business as well out here opened in 1895. So I think we have got a few generations worth of people out here that probably know each other. And yeah, so it, but it is it is really lovely to be part of part of um, rural history, I think, out here and, and the way these small communities develop and grow over the generations. Um, and, and that's something, again, that you've written about so beautifully and, and that's what I love about your writing is that you really capture the romance and and the essence of whether it's a male character or or an older male character and the journey is so – it's so easy to travel with your characters and, and see them go through the trials and tribulations and the romance and the hardship, whether it be weather or whatever's happening. I was wondering if you could tell me um, a bit more about your, your experiences in the here and now outside of your novels. What have you learned about other people through your writing and your writing career and, and how you've grown? I guess from a writer's point of view, one of the things I've learned is that people really want to be seduced by the written word. They really want to be, you know, carried away. And as an author, I'm asking them to give up their precious time and even probably spend money if they're not getting a book from a library to actually purchase one of my works and read it. So then hopefully I I really want them to enjoy it. And I think that's... There is very much this this dance of seduction between the reader and the writer because I want to write really engaging stories with, you know, strong narratives that sort of, you know, drive the plot onwards and I want feisty characters. But there's no point me trying to construct something like that if the reader isn't going to come along for the ride. So I think it's it's about, you know, trying to engage the reader in a really positive experience. So, yeah, that's probably the main thing I've learnt, that, uh, you know, readers really want to be seduced by work. They may not necessarily like what you're writing about. They may not always like some of the characters, but they still want to know what happens at the end. You know, they still want to be taken up and, and taken on that ride. What do you think it is about that ride? You know, I think in terms of coping coping strategies that some people utilise, obviously in terms of the fight or flight, the flight can be avoidance strategies and sometimes they can be healthy and sometimes not so healthy. But what do you think about reading as a healthy avoidance strategy where we can just go and curl up with 
a fabulous story. Is that something you do as you've done or is that something you're you're hoping to do for your reader is that they do get seduced so that they can escape from the world they're in? Escapism is a big part of it and I'm sure I'm sure I read somewhere that you know compared to watching a TV screen and reading a book you actually use more parts of your brain. Um, so there's that aspect apart from the problems you can get with your eyesight, I guess, if you're like me and you're looking at the screen for a long time. Yeah, so I think that's, um, yeah, I think it's, there's lots of different ways in which um, I think a book can totally take us in. And I can't recommend highly enough to the listeners that you guys out there listening that they the bark cutters. If you if you're looking for a good Australian read, and I have to say, when I first realised that it was a, a historical book, um, I, I hadn't read many historical genres books from that genre before. Um, but it it really is quite magical to feel connected to, um, I guess, Australia and the and the characters that you know are here in this community, and you really cover quite a few characters in your book, not just um, people who immigrated but also young Australians that try to make a career for themselves but also um, Indigenous people as well that were part of that farming community. I'm guessing that you borrowed on some of that from your family? Yes, definitely. Um, when my great-grandfather first settled our property, he chose a site near a local creek and made his camp there after selection. And one of the local tribes in the area actually approached him, rode up a couple of days later after seeing the, the the camp smoke and actually said to him, look, you know, you shouldn't build your house here because the area is subject to heavy flooding. And so based on that, he relocated um, to where the main homestead is now, which is sort of a good couple of kilometres away on, on a high dry ridge. So... Yes, certainly. Um, my experience with First Australians is very much through um, being part of a team. That's the way it's always been explained to me, that they were a part of a team working in a family business from the 1890s on. And certainly even with my next work that's coming out in September, I'm, I'm, I've sort of gone back a little further in time to show more of that element and the struggle of, of settlement, etc. And, you know, as I said, it, it's great to be able to have those diaries to draw on so you're getting the first-hand information and then backing it up with other sources. That is amazing to have that, that family history all recorded. So what about you? What have you learned about yourself throughout this this time? I mean, obviously your your writing career spans quite a few years now. But what have you learned about yourself through your writing? I've learned that, um, well, I think most people work extremely well under pressure and I do work extremely well under pressure, but it's not good for my health. Last year, beginning of the year, I had an accident in the cattle yards and hurt my shoulder and basically had lost use of my arm for sort of six or seven months. And at the time, I was like, oh, no, I've got a tour and I've got all these things that I have to do and I can't sit at the desk. How am I going to finish the next novel because I'm in such pain? But now I'm coming out the other end and it's made me slow down and reevaluate, I guess, my life and the large part that writing plays in that. Um, and I've realised that, you know, everyone talks about time management and it so is about time management. So this year I actually woke up at the end of 
January, just before I was about to go on holidays, and I said to myself, you have to change your mindset. You have to change perhaps your diet slightly. You have to, you know, push through with the exercises for the shoulder so you don't have to have surgery and and be out of it for, you know, six or eight weeks. And I did that to the extent that through my swimming, I actually broke some of the adhesions on my shoulder myself in the last fortnight. And now it looks like I don't have to have surgery. So, so much of what I've done, I guess, has been mind over matter of taking the view that, oh, look, I probably won't get get this book published, but I'll see what happens. Oh, no, I still don't want to give my first author talk when my book comes out. And I was so extraordinarily nervous, but I've gradually learnt that it doesn't matter if you make a mistake because people are usually willing to go along with the ride, for the ride, and be supportive. I've found that um, as my success has sort of increased which I'm very grateful for and I guess humbled at the same time because when a new book comes out I always sort of look at it and go wow you know is that me that's actually written that I found that you know your core friends remain your core friends um and that's a very you know it's a great thing to know that you've got a good support group and that was certainly one of the things I noticed when I was working overseas in a corporate environment that when you leave your home country and you go and do something by yourself it doesn't matter how great career-wise or fulfilling it is we all need that support network so some things have remained exactly the same for me but of course my writing has allowed me to do a lot of different things and I'm involved in a lot of different things too now from the novel perspective, touring around and being asked to speak at festivals and different things. So yeah, it's been a very, it's had its difficulties, but it's been a very positive ride for me and it's just lucky that I'm disciplined, I guess, so I can fit everything in. So tell us a bit more about that discipline. What, what You just mentioned that you're starting to look after yourself a bit more. Can you maybe give us a few, two or three things that you do to keep yourself balanced, things that you do to keep you focused on your writing when you need to or some downtime when you need to? What things are you really strict about? Um, with my writing, it's I have to do 5,000 words a week. So it doesn't matter if I... If I get to the end of the week and I've only got the weekend left, I have to do 5,000 words a week. I have a website and I blog on that regularly, so I have to do that a couple of times a week as well. I write everything down in my diary at the beginning of the week and just make sure that it's all there so I know what I have to accomplish. And, of course, that's over the top of what's happening on the farm as well because even though I can't work their hands-on now because of my, my injury, I'm still doing a lot of the you know the business side of things for it. So from a health point of view, I swim every second day, which is a bit limited because of my arm, but it's progress is being made. I walk every second day. I probably do about um, 20 kilometres a week walking and I also do my stretches as well. Um, I have three nights a week, which are alcohol-free. I could never give up alcohol totally because I love martinis and red wine, so they're unfortunately going to stay as part of my diet. But, you know, grapes are food, so I'm just managing to slide in there. And I try and be healthy with what I eat. I'm not very good with things like bread or – so even though I don't have a gluten intolerance, I tend to be better if I stay off those types of of products and I love fruit 
But I'm a bit different to people because I tend to eat lightly during the day and my main meal is still in the evenings and that's what I'm that's what my body's used to. So it sort of works for me, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for those tips. So um, if people want to find you or your books, what's the easiest way to get a hold of a book of yours? Well, you can go most uh, good bookstores. They'll be able to order them in if um, they don't have them in stock. And otherwise, you can just go to my website, which is nicolealexander.com.au. And there's buy links there and information, etc. if anyone's interested. Well, it's been so much fun to interview you, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for listening and joining with Nicole and I. And please go and at least get Bark Cutters because it's the awesomest book ever. So don't forget to support the show by telling your friends or you can go to the Facebook page, Carrie Thompson Casey. That's Thompson without a P. And like us there and give us your feedback. You can also subscribe to the show in iTunes. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating if you like the show. So please go and do that right now. Go to your computer, go to iTunes and give it a five-star rating if you love today's show or any of the other episodes. Um, you can support us by going to the website, carriethompsoncasey.com. Thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.